This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.2. No, she's too strong. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, giant robot enthusiast and real honest human being, I swear. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and podcast enthusiast. We now return you to the destruction of the Side 7 space colony already in progress. This episode sees our heroes shift from defense to escape, from the terror of the battle to the dread of knowing that the colony is bleeding oxygen and Xeon is coming back. There is no way out for them, except aboard the very same Federation warship that inadvertently led Xeon here in the first place and brought the war to this neglected little island in space. This week, we're going to talk a bit about how the events on Side 7 reflect two related events during World War II. The first one was the bombing and firebombing of Japanese cities by American forces during the war. But the second was the Battle of Okinawa. This is perhaps the less obvious allegory, and so I think it deserves a little bit more attention during this episode. We'll talk more after we watch the episode and give you the recap and our first impressions about the Battle of Okinawa, but it might be helpful to have a little bit of background up front. Okinawa is a largish island, about 460 square miles, making it the largest in the Ryukyu archipelago. It is roughly equidistant from Taiwan, mainland China, and the southern tip of the Japanese home islands. All the Ryukyu Islands have been officially part of Japan since they were annexed in 1879, but the Ryukyus have their own distinct culture that was, until the modern era, at least as much influenced by China as by Japan. Even today, Okinawa Prefecture remains culturally distinct from the rest of Japan. They have their own language, unique Okinawan religion, and even a significant Okinawan independence movement. The Battle of Okinawa was the last major battle between U.S. and Japanese forces in the Pacific and it was viewed by both sides as deciding the ultimate fate of the war. The U.S. intended to use Okinawa as a base from which they could launch air raids of the Japanese home islands, and as a staging ground for an eventual invasion. For the Japanese, hilly, densely wooded Okinawa looked like the perfect place where they could make their final stand, a natural fortress where they could lure in the American invasion force and destroy it. If they could succeed, they could break American morale, and perhaps even turn the tide of the war in the Pacific. But if they failed, and Okinawa fell, then so would Japan. As for the unlucky civilians living on Okinawa when the army decided to turn their home into a battlefield, well, let's watch the episode. Decimation. There are no pilots for the Gundam, no gunners for the defense turrets, no helmsmen for the ship. The colony is bleeding precious air through a breach that cannot be sealed. The ship's captain Paolo is badly wounded by shrapnel while personally manning a turret, and command falls to the only surviving officer, 19-year-old ensign Bright Noah. It is only his first trip into space, and now he is in command of the Federation's most advanced ship, far from any friendly forces, with nothing but a bunch of untrained civilians to operate the white base and some kid piloting the Gundam. He almost orders Amaro out of the Gundam, but Captain Paolo hangs onto consciousness long enough to remind Bright that, historically, there have been 15-year-old soldiers before. 
On the Xeon ship, Char reports to his commander, Vice Admiral Dozel Zabi, and receives his new orders. Capture or destroy the Gundam at any cost. While he waits for a supply ship carrying more Zaku mobile suits, Char himself launches with a small commando team in normal spacesuits to infiltrate the colony. Once inside, he is spotted by Sela Mass, another Side 7 civilian, out searching for survivors. She holds Char at gunpoint, but is distracted when he removes his mask. The face revealed is much like that of her long-lost older brother. Char escapes by jetpack, remembering his gentle sister, Artesia. Surely the young woman he just met is too strong to be her. While Char and his team escape, Amuro has them in his sights. His hands shake, his fingers won't respond. A scream tears itself from his throat. Shooting humans is very different from destroying mobile suits. As the white base tries to leave port, Char sorties personally in his custom red Zaku, sending the Federation officers into a panic when they realize that their enemy is none other than the famous Xeon Ace, known as the Red Comet. It's immediately clear that Amuro is no match for Char, but once again, the Gundam's superior specs allow it to survive the furious assault. With a single shot from the Gundam's powerful new beam rifle, Amuro destroys Char's wingman. Realizing that the Gundam wields firepower to rival a battleship's main cannon, Char panics and flees. Amuro has won the day against one of Xeon's finest aces, but Acting Captain Bright only chastises him for continuing to rely too much on the Gundam's technological superiority. Okay, so these are our impressions from the second episode. But the first thing I wanted to talk about actually is from the intro sequence that every episode gets. The very first shot in the intro is the planet Earth looking sort of grim and cloudy. And there's a bright sort of bubble of light on one side and then a halo of light that spreads starting from that bubble and then goes all the way around the planet. This is a very spacey kind of image, you know, the earth and the sunlight falling on it, etc., etc. But I don't think that's sunlight. I think, the, I think that's the colony drop. The bubble of light is too big to really be anything else. Oh. See, I actually assumed that it was the colony drop. Mm. I never thought it was just sunrise over the earth. So the first image we see is the most cataclysmic act of you know, genocide that you can imagine. Everything in the show, both artistically and narratively, follows in the wake of that. Well, and there's a line in the opening about uh, humanity being horrified by its own actions. Um, You'll notice that doesn't stop the war. Right. That, that means they want to end the war more quickly with more horrifying weapons rather than, oh, we should try to negotiate some sort of peaceful resolution to this. Too many people have already died. And what a joke when Amro's father, Tem Ray says, oh, now with our more powerful Gundam, we'll finally be able to bring the war to a conclusion. When we think about the mid to late 70s and into the 80s and the Cold War and nuclear escalation and this idea of, oh, they're just a deterrent. We'll never use them. But we have to have hundreds or thousands of nuclear weapons so that we never have to use them. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the Gundam is an analog to that. Like, oh, if we have a bunch of Gundams, then no one will ever go to war with us ever again. The opening also talks about, and I didn't think about this in the first episode much, but the uh, Xeon is the furthest side from Earth. And so, you know, it's the most removed. For that reason, it's the least visited, perhaps the least well understood in terms of its population and their needs. The least well represented uh, in terms of, you know, access to central government. 
which means they're, they're some of the most likely to want to be independent. And also, theoretically, the most likely to be able to get independence. It's that much harder for the Federation to get to them. Xeon uh, side three is located opposite the moon from the Earth, even with the most powerful telescope. You could never see Xeon and vice versa. So very quickly in the opening, we get introduced to Vice Admiral Dozel of Xeon. I think this is one of our first unsympathetic looks at Xeon. Like a very hierarchical, like everything in his comments about, oh, I was going to throw a banquet for you and you ruined it by dawdling everything. All my banquet preparations were for nothing. Uh, It feels ridiculous. It feels very um, sort of aristocratic and excessive, especially in the midst of war. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you picked up on that so quickly in those couple of lines. Because you're absolutely right. And that's going to be a major theme going forward as we see the leadership of the Xeon. It's very impressive, I think, on the part of the, the show creators that they were able to convey all of that basically in just a couple of lines with this one character. Yeah, well, that in his delivery. But we start to get a sense that while, while Char seems to be both an excellent soldier himself and also a particularly good commander of his men, who his men respect and who, you know, treats them with the right combination of sort of seriousness and mercy, that that may not be true of the whole leadership. Char is clearly ready and willing to sacrifice his soldiers for the mission, though he doesn't seem eager to do it. And he does seem, certainly seem to be um, distressed when it happens. But the orders he gets from uh, Vice Admiral Zabi are to destroy Gundam and the White Base even if he has to sacrifice his entire ship to do it. Oh, and for reference for anybody who hasn't been able to watch the episodes along with us, it's Zabi Dozel. Or Dozel Zabi? Dozel Zabi. Yeah, Zabi, Dozel. Zabi is the last name. Okay, Dozel Zabi. So we are talking about the same guy. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, that actually brings up an issue, though, which is the internationalization of the characters and the world here. Oh, yeah, because the, it's, the American or Western style naming convention. Yeah, First name, not, last name. It's not Yashima Mirai, it's Mirai Yashima. Um, and it's Hayato Kobayashi. I mean, these are very Japanese names, but they're ordered in the, the Western way with first name first and family name second. Um, Amuro, when he's driving around in his car, the driver's side is the American style. Uh, I mean, on the bridge, Mirai says Roger, not Yokai, <laughs> which is Japanese for Roger and what most anime use, uh, but she says it in English. And of course, many of these characters do not have Japanese names or have half Japanese names. Amuro Rei and Ryu Jose are both half Japanese. Um, Bright Noah certainly is not a Japanese name. Well, Sela, mm-hmm. Frabo. Yep. Yeah. Um, back to meaningless age distinction. Bright's <laughs> reaction when he sees Amuro piloting. Some kid is piloting the Gundam. Um, most of us, I don't know how many youthful listeners we have, but most of us have been 18, 19. Obviously, we, we, at the time, we were adults. And 15-year-olds were children. But from a somewhat further remove, this feels pretty ridiculous. It does. Interestingly, the second in command, the commander of the Musai, the Lochar, and Bright are the same rank. Mm. As much as there's a rivalry between Char and Amuro in center frame, perhaps we should be paying attention to these two ship captains 
as we go forward. Well, then the, the captain of the white base makes some comments. This is Captain Paolo, by the way. Yeah. I, I think he makes explicit some of the stuff we've been discussing about how war affects children. That in the exigencies of war, when the chips are down, we cannot afford to be too too nice, too particular in our ideas. If, all, if he is the most experienced pilot you have, suddenly all of our peacetime ideas about, oh, 15 is too young, go out the window. All of their lives are in a big way uh, dependent on Amaro's ability to protect them. When Bright says, oh, I'll have, I'll have Amaro get out of the Gundam. This kid can't pilot. I'll have him get out. Captain Paolo's response is, well, only if we have pilots. And Bright, with his six months experience... <laughs> on uh, his first trip into space. On his first trip into space... Does not know all that much more than Amuro. There's a discussion of what Amuro should do to destroy the unused Gundam parts. And Amuro says, uh, I guess the Super Napalm? And Bright's not actually sure either, and he checks with the captain. Mm-hmm. And the captain is like, Amuro is right. Um, for all that Bright right now is putting on his rank and putting on, well, I know better than all of you civilians, he's not certain at all right. about what to do. He doesn't know where the button to turn on the camera is. Yes. <laughs> so that you brought up the Super Napalm. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit mm-hmm. because I think going into this before we started researching it, I thought Napalm was developed for Vietnam. But... It turns out it's actually older than that, and it was originally used in warfare, at least, in World War II. Um, And it was used in the firebombings of Japan. I couldn't find any certain evidence about this, but given timing, the fact that it was being used already, and that uh, Odawara, the city where Tomino was living at the time, was firebombed, I think there's a very, very good chance that Napalm was used in the bombing of his home city when he was four. I think the use of Super Napalm instead of anything else they could have used there, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a throwaway line. It's a brief moment. They could when, have made up a name. Yeah. Or you could have just shot them with the rifle, right? They could have destroyed them in a million different ways, but they chose to use Super Napalm and it never shows up again. And that's that feels very significant to me. First of all, it has to further solidify the impression we already had, which is that the destruction of Site 7 is meant to evoke the bombings of Japanese cities during World War II. Agreed. And it may also be further evidence that we are supposed to associate the Federation with the United States. In the, in the great pantomime of World War II that we're playing out here, the Federation is the U.S., which is really interesting because our heroes are on the side of the Federation. I mean, are our heroes on the side of the Federation? We hear <laughs> Hayato sounds like he wishes he could just stay out of it. I don't... And the side was clearly not... Um, they weren't necessarily mustered for wartime. They didn't have people... They didn't have civilian involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, when they evacuate the side, it's not because they're under attack, because they don't realize yet that they are. It's to keep the civilians from seeing the top secret tech as it's moved on board right. to a brand new base. So, you know, are the sides really involved in the war or is it just Earth? 
as I said before, I think that the attack on Site 7 is meant to evoke attacks on, on Japanese cities. I think it's also separately a reference to Okinawa during World War II. Mm-hmm. Like Okinawa, Side 7 is under the control of the Federation, but a civilian colony, fairly underdeveloped. Side 7 hasn't actually been finished yet. They don't really want Federation military bases there. They're not really part of the war, but the Federation put a base there anyway, and that made them part of the war, and ended up getting their colony wrecked and most of the population killed. And the rest turned into refugees. Or soldiers. Against, yeah. Yes, against their will. Yeah. Yeah, which leads me into thinking a bit about some of the various characters who we're getting to know a little better in this episode. Um, I think it's very interesting that there does not appear to be any uh, sexism in terms of, say, Mirai piloting the ship or Sela working on the ship's bridge. There's no sense that, like, we can't have a woman pilot the ship or, ah, only because we have no other pilots. It's like, oh, no, this is the most... Nobody even mentions that they're women. And then when Frabo and Sela go do the, frankly, I think, foolhardy and exceptionally dangerous search for any remaining survivors on the side, there's no, like, we can't send women into danger. It's like, oh, no, these are two you know, young people who have been very helpful and very proactive mm-hmm. on the ship. Okay, great. One last minute thing before we leave. Go see if you can find any survivors. Interesting character note. When Sela is sent out to do that search for survivors, she has a gun in her car. I don't think she was issued that gun for this purpose. It's like under some magazines in her glove compartment. I think Sela carries a gun everywhere she goes. Uh, I wonder if that's significant. <laughs> Um, possibly unpopular opinion. I kind of got a side with Kai in that whole confrontation <laughs> with Sela. Like, you're a bunch of untrained. Well, maybe Sela's not, but <laughs> Bravo and Kai are not military personnel. They have no combat experience whatsoever. I would think that at this point, with the enemy ship closing in, you would want to get white base away as quickly as possible. What good is Kai going to do? Kind of, sort of, running around Side 7 <laughs> with no idea where to look for anyone uh, and no real way to get them back if he did find someone. Like, what's he going to do? Carry however many people he finds? Like, it's a little ridiculous. Yep. It was definitely the right move on his part to, like, get to safely as quickly as he could, which he did. And he gets a running slap from Sela. Uh, and to be called a coward. So. I guess I guess Sela is just too strong. <laughs> um, I mean, he's definitely <laughs> smarmy. I get the feeling we're not supposed to like Kai. Um, they draw him so snide. I mean, the expression yeah. on his face. He is best summed up with the sound, nah. <laughs> Agreed. Um, but when the soldier who's got a survivor comes up, like... Kai's not like, no, I won't help you carry that wounded guy inside. <laughs> it's not a d- about it. Although, in Sailor's defense, when Kai runs up, he does run right past them, struggling with the wounded guy for the elevator. Okay, fine. He is definitely very self-interested. I just think, in a lot of ways, his response is more reasonable. Although, like, what on earth is Kai doing on the bridge in the last scene? I assume he just wandered in and there was no one to stop him. Well, right, but why would he even want to be there? So that we know he's going to be important in the future? Maybe. Probably. The other big impressions of this episode are of the combat. 
we get, you know, several moments of Amro having difficulty shooting at a person who is not in a mobile suit. That, you know, it was one thing to shoot at this big, hulking, inhuman piece of technology. Even if it's shaped like a human. And and another to shoot at a tiny person in a spacesuit. They do another really uh, great moment. So several times we see Amuro take aim at Char and Char dart out of the way at the last second. When Amuro takes aim at Slender in a regular Zaku, there's this little like vibrating back and forth like Slender is trying to serpentine or like trying Mm -hmm. to do evasive maneuvers like Char, but it's just not as good. Mm -hmm. Either because Zaku isn't as good or he isn't as good a pilot. And Amuro takes him out in one hit. Things don't work out super well for the people of Side 7, do they? Here we have a foreign colonizer's army, and whatever good you can say about the Earth Federation, they are fundamentally a government of and for Earth. Not the space colonies. Not Side 7. So this army sets up a base in what is essentially an otherwise out-of-the-way, demilitarized island in space. That army base then leads directly to an enemy attack on the side, the deaths of hundreds, probably thousands of civilians, the conscription of the side's young people, and the evacuation of the crippled colony. And back on Okinawa, things went pretty poorly for the civilians there, too. I'm not going to attempt to describe the battle in detail or go into the full litany of atrocities and tragedies that occurred during the battle. There's no way that I could possibly do justice to it, to the scale of it, the tragedy, the horror. So... I'm mostly going to focus on areas where I think there are parallels between the Battle of Okinawa and the Battle on Side 7. There are a few of these. First, the shelters. In Episode 1, Amuro is hiding in one of the shelters when he hears the sounds of battle. He recognizes the sounds of explosions, and he knows it's a Xeon attack. Now, he immediately realizes the shelter will not actually protect him, or any of them, because the shelter is not built to withstand enemy fire. This seems ridiculous when you think about it, but the same thing really happened during the Battle of Okinawa. Shelters where civilians were taking refuge were not capable of withstanding the U.S. bombardment, and many of them were destroyed. Just like on Side 7, that, as well as some other factors, forced many civilians out into the open, despite the danger. Second, the land expropriation. How do you think the Imperial Army got all the land to build all of those bases? How do you think the Federation got the land to build the development facility? Fraubo alludes to this during her conversation with Hayato in episode one, right after she's retrieved Amuro from his home. And she asks Hayato if he's still mad about the Federation government forcing them all to move when they built the Gundam facility. In much the same way, when the Imperial Japanese Army decided to fortify Okinawa during the early days of the Pacific War, They forcibly expropriated land, farms, even homes, in order to build air bases and fortifications. And that sort of behavior shouldn't really surprise us, because Side 7 is a colony, and while Okinawa may technically have been part of Japan at that point, it was very much treated as a colony, and that is pretty much how colonial powers treat their colonies. Finally, and I think most tellingly, most significantly for Gundam, is the conscription of young Okinawans. Now, thousands of Okinawan civilians were forcibly conscripted, and many of them were adults, but what's particularly noteworthy about the Battle of Okinawa is the young age of many of the conscripts. 
The Imperial Japanese Army forced hundreds of middle school girls to serve as army nurses. And remember that Frau Bo and Sela both serve as combat medics during the fighting on Side 7. Additionally, more than 1,700 middle school boys as young as 14 were forcibly conscripted and made to fight as guerrillas or given hand grenades and ordered to attack tanks. So in episode one, when Temre bemoans the fact that there are children younger than his 15-year-old son already fighting as guerrillas, well, perhaps we should remember those 14-year-old Okinawan boys. Now this mass conscription during the Battle of Okinawa was all done without any real legal authority. So those conscripts were, quote, volunteers. But after the battle, in August 1945, the Imperial Cabinet passed a law that would allow the army to do the same thing on the home islands, but on an even bigger scale. In order to protect Japan, the Imperial Army was authorized to conscript all able-bodied male civilians between 15 and 60 years old, as well as all unmarried female civilians between 17 and 40. For the most part, this never actually happened, but the plan was to organize them into defense units, which would be led by civilians who had some prior experience with the weapons that they were going to be using. And doesn't that just sound like our main characters? When you think about it, Amuro is already a technology whiz and computer genius before he ever gets into the Gundam. Frau and Sela both know how to provide combat medicine already. Hayato trains in martial arts. Even Kai, Mr. Mm-hmm, is going to turn out to have a license to operate heavy vehicles, and that's going to come in handy later. Of course, those kids all volunteered to defend the white base, didn't they? It's still volunteering when you don't have a choice, right? Tomino wasn't just interested in telling a World War II story. In interviews, he has said that part of his motivation for making First Gundam was the increasingly conservative and militaristic political discourse of the 1960s and 70s. Frustrated with society's short memory, he wanted to remind us all of the horrors of war and the evils of an imperialist Japan. This was an era when the pacifism that followed the war started to fade. The U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which was amended to include a mutual defense obligation and to provide for the continued presence of U.S. military bases in Japan, was signed in 1960 despite mass protests. 1970 saw the first visit by a sitting prime minister to Yasukuni Shrine. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Imperial Shrine of Yasukuni was founded in 1869 to commemorate those who died in service of Japan mostly soldiers, but also women, children, even pets. This is done without the permission of the deceased's family. In the 1960s and 70s, the government secretly decided to enshrine war criminals there as well. Since then, visiting the shrine has been a way for conservative politicians to signal their support for a more militarized and nationalistic Japan, leading to frequent national and international protests. Before we wrap up episode two, we have some final thoughts about the arms race, Zeon versus the Federation, childhood in wartime, and the strength of Sailor Mass. We talked a little bit about this attitude that the key to ending war and ensuring peace is for the Federation to just amass vast numbers of superior mobile suits, and how that resembles the logic of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War. That is, if both sides just have enough nuclear weapons, then neither side will be willing to risk a war because it means total annihilation for everyone. Now, nuclear bomb allegories are so common in anime that as the length of an anime series increases, the likelihood of a nuclear bomb allegory showing up approaches 100%. 
So I'm not sure that's true of all anime. It's kind of hard to imagine how that might come up in something like Princess Jellyfish, for instance. Season six, the jellyfish have a bomb. (laughs) But uh, it is a longstanding tradition and subject in Japanese science fiction. In Godzilla, for instance, in Akira. So do you think we're there already? Is Amuro's Gundam episode one, episode two, the nuclear bomb? I think probably the more direct parallel is that the colony drop is an atomic bomb. It looks like a bomb in the opening animation. Even the way it's described, this horror at what humanity had done. But to continue their arms race, to continue their uh, weapons proliferation, the thing that the White Base and the Gundam most remind me of, and, and other ships like the, the Xeon ships launching the Zaku, is of an aircraft carrier and fighter planes. Especially when you think about the role that fighter planes played, especially in World War II, where the introduction of the fighter plane and the aircraft carrier totally changed the nature of warfare in the Pacific, and likewise, the introduction of the mobile suit, the Zaku, totally changed the nature of warfare in space. The early adoption by the Xeon of the Zaku is responsible for a lot of their early success in the war. It's interesting that you say that about fighter planes, because one of the key distinctions between U.S. and Japanese fighter planes, especially early in the war, was that the U.S. planes were more heavily armored and had more powerful guns. The combination of that meant that while a U.S. plane could take multiple hits from a Japanese fighter and still keep flying. For Japanese planes, often one lucky shot, especially if it hit a fuel tank, which were unarmored, would cripple the plane or destroy it. Which we see happen over and over in this episode. Exactly. The Gundam has much more powerful armor and can just shrug off dozens of hits from the Zaku's machine gun, but a single shot from the Gundam's powerful beam rifle is enough to destroy the Zaku. In the first episode, we see the Zaku's reactor get hit, which is a bit like seeing the fuel tank get hit and it explodes catastrophically. Related to this parallel that we found between military technology during World War II and the military technology in the show, I wonder if as this series progresses and as we move on to future series, we're going to see similar kinds of development in the kinds of changes that are made to each successive Gundam or Zaku or whatever they're calling the mobile suit in whatever episode it is. Things like uh, better cloaking, things like uh, being drones and piloted remotely. Mm. (laughs) I wonder, listeners, if that's going to continue to come up. We'll just have to watch the episodes and find out. Since we're already talking about the differences in the military technology between the two sides, last episode, I remember you pointing out that the Xeon aesthetic is kind of a throwback to the early years of the 20th century with their uniforms, uh, the designs of the Zaku. It's especially apparent now when we compare it to the Federation, which has a kind of bright and shiny, almost Star Trek futurism look to it. The Xeon officers wear capes and epaulets. The soldiers are in muddy greens and khakis, and they have helmets that pretty closely resemble the helmets that German soldiers were wearing in both world wars. And the gold braid chest decorations for rank insignia looks a lot more like something you'd expect to find on a medieval knight than a soldier in any modern army. And as for the Zaku, I mean, they look like tanks and they're armed with machine guns and hatchets. 
up against bright and shiny Gundam with its beam rifle and its, I swear it's not a lightsaber, lightsaber. <laughs> and we start to get the impression that Xeon is kind of a throwback in other ways, too. So what do you think they're trying to do with those with setting up the two sides like this? One of my first reactions to how Xeon was being portrayed is that we're meant to be sympathetic to their cause. Uh, they want independence. It's hard not to sympathize with that sentiment. However, you mentioned Star Trek futurism with regard to the Federation. And to kind of flesh out what we're talking about there, we're talking about the way people in the 1970s thought the future would be. And it's a future that is multi-ethnic and multiracial. It's a future with more opportunities and more equality for women. It's a future that is less socially stratified. And we've talked a couple of times about the Gundam future as being international, but in a big way, what we're really talking about is post-national. No one is from the U.S. or Japan or France. People are from Earth. Or aside. We also get a sense that things are a little flatter structurally than they might be in Xeon, where we see a lot of attention to rank, where we know that they have aristocracy of a sort. It is a principality. It just feels like they are trying to recreate a more feudal time. We don't see a single woman. No. We don't see any meaningful ethnic difference between the people, except that Char is a lot fairer skinned. So yeah, we're seeing a society that is that seems to be, from what we are shown in this episode, more stratified, more homogenous, more old-fashioned. And we don't sympathize with wanting that instead of what the Federation has. Mm -hmm. Or at least I don't. <laughs> I don't know how viewers at the time would have felt about it. Like we've said, we're only two episodes in. Most of what we've seen is combat. We really haven't seen society. We really haven't seen much outside of these brief glimpses of how people are behaving in a, a tense, dangerous situation. So we'll have a better grasp of what Xeon is later on. But clearly Tomino wants us to feel that this is more complicated, that there are layers to this conflict. Right. It's not a clash of nations over territory or anything like that. There is a real philosophical difference. It's a clash between a nation, perhaps even between nationalism and this international post-national federation. I'll do a full citation in the show notes, but in Mizuko Ito's article, Migrating Media, Anime Media, and the Childhood Imagination, she talks about how only when childhood is idealized and that abstract ideal is made concrete, can we experience a sense of childhood violated or at risk, which is precisely what this show banks on. Our initial reaction to a bunch of young children and young teens in this situation is horror, because childhood is supposed to be a time of safety and innocence. For all that that's, within the great span of human history, a pretty modern <laughs> idea, uh, it certainly was very prevalent in the post-war period and has been since then. Well, and for all of the horror of those early scenes, we get over it pretty quickly. I think because most of us understand on some level that children are capable of violence. And of course, the show works as a show for children because children understand that instinctively. Children are intimately familiar with their own capacity for violence. Technology is a big part of what makes 
it makes the distinction irrelevant. You know, a child with a sword is probably doesn't stand a great chance against an adult with a sword. But if you give them both guns, even the sword is a great equalizer for a smaller, weaker person. If you think about combat in its rawest form, hand to hand, the size and weight advantage that an adult has is pretty much unbeatable. But as soon as you add a weapon, as soon as you add a knife, then the smaller person has a better chance. A sword, even better. A spear, better still. And then, of course, a gun. And I mean, anyone who has played Counter-Strike with a 15-year-old knows that their reflexes make them far more dangerous than an, an adult. As technology makes physical size less relevant to your ability as a soldier, your ability to kill another person, uh, suddenly, in a horrifying way, child soldiers become more viable rather than less. When you watch Gundam, Char and Amuro are quite small people. And, of course, there are huge people in the show. I mean, Admiral Zabi, Admiral Dozel Zabi, is like seven feet tall. Ryu Jose is enormous. But our warrior heroes at the heart of the show are both small people, quite slender. Which actually ties back into the connection to fighter planes. To be a very tall fighter pilot was a distinct disadvantage. It's actually something I remember from reading Roald Dahl's second autobiography, where he talks about being a fighter pilot during the war. Because he'd always wanted to be a pilot. He desperately wanted to be a pilot. He was very tall. He was over six feet tall. And I think they almost wouldn't let him do it. He was extremely uncomfortable every time he was in a plane. <laughs> it was a, a disadvantage rather than an advantage with that new piece of technology. We talked earlier about our relationship with the different characters, the different evacuees aboard the white base. And this is the episode that brings the last of them into focus. It introduces us to Kai and to Sela, two characters who really could not be more different from each other. And they share a, let's call it tender moment in the episode. And Kai is an ordinary, if like slightly more cynical than the rest of the cast person, while Sela is strong, too strong. Sela is heroic and she's rigid and harsh, almost to the point of cruelty. I mean, when Kai admits that he didn't go looking for anybody before running for safety, Sela tells him that he's a coward and that cowards like him should be left behind. I think Kai and Sela represent two extreme ends of a spectrum. Kai is intense pragmatism and self-interest. Sela is unyielding heroism, which I think feels a little unfair. We talked for a moment about how she has a gun. She may have had some kind of military training. And so expecting the same level of comfort in a combat situation from people who don't have that training is entirely unreasonable of her, but doesn't stop her from doing it. But between those two poles, we have most of the rest of the characters who we see afraid. We almost don't see Sela afraid. No. Not really. She's briefly startled when <laughs> Char takes off his mask and kicks the gun out of her hand. Right. But she's not afraid. Whereas Amaro and Bravo and Judo Kid. Hayato. Hayato. We see in the first episode how much Bravo has to struggle even just to keep going after her mother and her grandfather are killed. We see Amaro's struggle with shooting at people. We see him shake as he fights Char and realize that he hasn't truly experienced combat yet, but they're trying to do the best they can in spite of their fear to do right by the group. 
I think it's that that social pressure, that feeling that everyone is depending on them and that they can make things better for everyone that keeps them engaged. I don't think Sayla's heroism comes from a point of social obligation. Just as Kai's pragmatism is self-centered, I think Sayla's heroism is self-centered. She does it because that's who she is, and she's very proud of being this brave heart person. Pride is a good way to, to describe that. One final bonus tidbit. Remember last episode when we talked about the G3 Gundam, the one with the Tomino-approved color scheme? Well, it actually appeared in this episode. It's one and only anime appearance. Did you catch it? Those spare Gundam parts, the ones that got loaded onto the white base or destroyed by the Super Napalm, are the remains of the partially completed RX-78 G3 prototype. And later in the war, they're going to be reassembled off-camera to form the G3 Gundam. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.3, Mistakes Were Made, for Frabo and the Orphans, Space Democracy, Char teaches us to always ask for more than we need. First thing we do, we kill all the engineers. So long, space walrus. Manuel, relay instructions. In space, no one can hear Bright scream. Laser sword, light blade, and the rise of Admiral Zobel. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling that Gundam The Origin is 100% canon on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. like to re-record for posterity and in better quality that you are not allowed to do alliterations again ever no more alliteration for you you can't stop me you don't have that power sailor mess side seven civilian out searching for survivors i think we have a snake snake infestation in the studio the gundam's superior specs survive the furious assaults single shot. I'm sorry that the English language has a lot of S's in it. It's like you're trying to write tongue twisters. I think that should be good.